Well, as asked to, I was asked to uh, proclaim the word of the Lord to you this afternoon uh, as the church has confessed that concerning the keys of the kingdom of heaven from Lord's Day 31. Uh, I did learn that you've uh, already had a bit of preaching on this last week, so we'll have a bit of uh, double up from, from last week to this week. Uh, it's my hope that it will still be of benefit for you to hear these things again, uh, maybe from a slightly different perspective, and that through this also the Lord will impress upon you more, again, more the, uh, the meaning of these keys and also the importance of them. We read to, from two portions of Scripture today, from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15 to 25, and then from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. First scripture reading then is Isaiah chapter 22. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, that's however the household of David, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold of you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die. There shall be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office. You'll be pulled down from your station. And that day I'll call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I'll clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him. And will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And here's a verse in particular I'd like you to focus on, verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor for his, to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and the issue, every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. We'll also uh, turn to Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. This is with respect to the preaching. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So far, the reading from God's word. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your book of praise to the heart of a catechism, to Lord's Day 31. We'll read the entire Lord's Day. Lord's Day 1 of the Hardware Catechism, beginning on page 546. <coughs> Question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. Question 84. How is the kingdom of heaven open and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. Question 85. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrinal life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Lord's Day 31 uh, is given to us uh, within a context of a number of Lord's Days that go before it, really beginning in Lord's Day 25. Uh, Lord's Day 25 begins that section of what is called the Word and Sacraments, and it speaks there about what is actually taught in the Word and the Sacraments. In other words, what is the message of the Word, that is the preaching and the, Lord's, the baptism and Lord's Supper. And Lord's at 25 gave the explanation of this in saying that the Word and the sacraments uh, are intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the cross as the only ground of our salvation. This is so important that it is emphasized in question 66 and 67 once again, both in the question and in the answer. We need to understand that this is what it's all about. This is the gospel message. God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. 
And then as you went through and you learned about the doctrine of holy baptism, you learned that indeed this is what baptism teaches us. Question 69 of Lord said 26, how does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? You see, this is really what, ben- what baptism is all about. You also had this then with respect to the Lord's Supper. The Lord said 28 asked the question, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in the one, Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? And so what we have here very clearly is that gospel message which has been preached to you over the last number of weeks. And that is that you are called to believe in that one sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the only ground for your salvation. That's important that we understand this because this is really the message of the gospel. This is the message of the scriptures and this really is the message also then that we confess in the heart of a catechism. And it's from here that we then go to Lord's Day 31 with respect to the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Why is this so important? Because it shows us why these keys are given and how they are to be administered and why it is so important then that we take note of those particular keys. Because what we learn is that not everybody is to be saved in Christ. Lord say seven had already taught us this. But only those who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. And that means that the kingdom of heaven is open to some, but it is closed to others. And we need to know how it's opened and how it's closed. We need to know that for the sake of our very salvation. And we need to know this also to help us also to speak to those who are turning away from that kingdom and also to call others to it. And what we learn from the scriptures, and then therefore what we also confess in our catechism, is that God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, has given those keys to his church to exercise them and to use them rightly. And that's what I wish to preach to you about this afternoon. My theme is Christ gives the keys of the kingdom to open and to shut. Christ gives the keys of the kingdom to open and to shut. Two questions. First, who holds the keys? And second, how are the keys administered? First of all, then the question, who holds the keys? Well, before you're received to the Lord's table uh, here in, in Mandijong, uh, you are called, first of all, to make a public profession of your faith. And together as churches, we have agreed on how you are to make that profession. And there are a number of questions to which you are called to give your answer to, your I do to. These questions... Uh, demonstrate, first of all, that you know and that you believe the doctrine of the Word of God, that is the gospel. Yes, we know and believe it as uh, we receive it and as we have it preached and taught in this church. You understand also what your baptism is all about and how God has called you to be his child and he says, I am your God and, and you are my child and you are to live before me in covenant. You're also to promise that it's your desire then to to live for God. 
That you're going to turn away from the world, you're going to forsake the world, crucify your old nature, and want to live for God in all things. And then there's also the fourth question. The last one. I'll read that to you. Fourth, do you firmly resolve to commit your whole life to the Lord's service as a living member of his church? And then there's this question. Do you promise to submit willingly to the admonition and discipline of the church if it should happen and may God graciously prevent it that you become delinquent either in doctrine or in conduct? One thing I'd like you, what I'd like you just to notice also of this particular question, not just your promise to submit willingly to the admonition and discipline of the church, which is uh, of, of the elders, but what I'd like you to recognize here is that this implies correctly that there is such a thing as the admonition and discipline of the church. What this means is that you are acknowledging that the church has authority over her members. The church can exercise discipline. Now, for us as Reformed Christians, this is not a strange concept. Uh, we've been taught this. We hear it preached. Uh, we, we go to Bible passages which describe this both in how it is to take place and also uh, in the fact that it did take place throughout uh, the letters of Paul, for example. We also confess this in our Belgian Confession, Article 29. One of the marks of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it exercises church discipline for correcting and for punishing sins. But I'd like you just to think a little more deeply about that this afternoon and to ask yourself, is it actually true? And do you really believe this? Does the church, and specifically do the elders of the church, do they have not just the right, but do they have the responsibility to discipline? Yes, do they have the authority to declare that the kingdom of heaven is open to some, but that it is shut to others. Is it right, now to use laws at 31 language, is it right also for preachers to proclaim and testify to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them for as long as they do not repent? And more, and I know you've had this preached about it recently, but do the elders have the right and the responsibility to forbid certain people from using the sacraments? And do they even have the responsibility to exclude them from the Christian congregation? I'm asking you to think about these things. Because whereas in times past, it was just simply accepted by everybody that the church does have such authority. But today it seems as though that, that acceptance is on shaky ground. Today it's challenged. Sometimes it's challenged through uh, recognizing, through claiming uh, that such authority can be and is abused. 
We do know that is true. We know that that is nothing new. We know that our Lord Jesus Christ warned against the abuse of authority of the scribes, of the Pharisees, of the chief priests. But that doesn't mean that it is not to be used correctly. But then there is also that spirit of what we call an independent spirit, where one would ask and challenge, well, who is the church and who are the elders to judge me? Let me just be me and to figure for myself how I should live and what I should do. What gives anybody, what gives men a right to tell me how to live and what I should do? Who are they to say that I should be in church? Who are they to say whether or not I'm permitted to the Lord's table? Who is the church and who are the elders to to excommunicate a member who persists in his sin? To exclude them, that means, from the communion of the church and to declare them excluded from the fellowship of Christ and of his kingdom. Connected to then, that then is that understanding, that thought, then that my faith, that my relationship with Jesus Christ, it's a personal thing. It's got nothing really to do with the church or with membership in the church. It's, it's really between me and God. He's the one who can judge me, but that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm free to come, I'm free to go as I please. Nobody really has the authority to tell me what to do. In that sense, church is seen more as a, as a society of like-minded people that you come to, to apply for and to join and then to move on when it no longer suits. But is that really true? Who does hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And why is this so? Well, we have to begin by acknowledging that it's Jesus Christ who holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In that sense, to say, it is God who judges me, and it is ultimately Christ who will determine whether or not I may enter the kingdom, is right. He is the one who on the last day will either be saying to each one of us, depart from me, I never knew you, or he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. It's absolutely correct. There's there's no question about that. And even now, he is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is the one who governs us. Concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things, the words of the Holy One, the true one, and that's Jesus, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is, this is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who really ultimately has the key of David. He's the one who opens and shuts. There's no question about that, and we must acknowledge that and recognize it. So we'll show what we read in in a similar way in, in Isaiah. We'll get back to that. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is the absolute ruler. He is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is Matthew 28, verse 18. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who is the head of the church. The elders who are here, your, your regular pastor, he is not the head of, of Mandijong Church. The Lord Jesus Christ and he alone is. 
Christ alone has authority. He has the power to open and to close the kingdom. <coughs> it's important we recognize this. It's important we understand this. It's also important we understand this because for all the, the independentism and all the independent ideas and all the ideas that people have that actually discipline isn't such a thing that elders are to exercise over a church, there are many such churches where still the pastor acts as the Pope of that little first, of that of that congregation and decides who can come and who cannot. It's Christ who's the head. But that is not all there is to say. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, He has He has delegated the use of these keys. He's delegated the use of the keys to the church. And specifically to the elders of the church. In the New Testament, uh, we first uh, learn about this in Matthew chapter 16. That's where we specifically hear about it. At that time, our Lord Jesus Christ was uh, with his disciples in Caesarea and Philippi, and uh, he asked them uh, who he was. And then in verse 15 of chapter 16, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And it says, And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then it says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the, excuse me, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so although our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he has given them to others to use. On the foundation, on the basis of that gospel uh, confession that our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed our Savior and our complete salvation is to be found in him. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where the keys of the kingdom of heaven is specifically mentioned. And if this is all that the Bible is to say about these keys, we might still be wondering, well, what do they mean and how do we use them? There are, however, other Bible texts that shed further light on what these keys are and whom God, Christ gives them to and uh, how to exercise them. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 18, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he spoke about what to do when someone sins against you. Uh, this is what he said, and it's very similar to what we read in Lord's Day 31, Matthew 18, verse 15 to 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, and you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, Treat them 
as a Gentile and a tax collector. Put them out of your fellowship, out of your church, out of the community of faith. And in this way, the Lord teaches us that the church is to exclude from their communion those who persistently sin and who refuse to repent. And by saying that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ is clearly given the authority to the church to declare that the door to the kingdom of heaven is closed to those who persist in their sin. And it's not just the gospel according to Matthew where we find this. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 21 to 23, uh, we have this as well. Following his resurrection from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ is uh, speaking to his uh, disciples. And it says, And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so it's clear then from Scripture that when the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, he was pleased to give his disciples the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and that is the authority to open and to shut. But he gave this authority to them to use not how they wished or not in accordance with their own ideas as to what should or shouldn't be happening. But he gave these to them to use on his behalf. And that means two things. First of all, the church is obliged to use the keys of the kingdom as God has given. It's not for us to say as a church, well, perhaps that would have floated a hundred years ago. But today, no, it's just simply important that we just tell everybody to come as you are and you can come and go as you please. No, we cannot do this. As a church, we are commanded to use those keys. But second, the church must be very careful in how to use these keys and to use them as Christ intended it. This is why I... Got you to read with me from Isaiah chapter 22. Because we read together from Isaiah 22, and there's a man called Shebna, and he's placed over the house of David. He held, so to speak, it says, the keys to the house of David. What that meant is this Shebna, he could admit to come into the presence of the king, whomever he chose to, to receive, and those whom he didn't want to see have come into the presence of the king, he could just shut out. He's basically the doorkeeper. And he says, yes, you can come see the king. No, you cannot. He's supposed to be doing this to seek the welfare of the people. You see, if, if the door was simply open and anybody could just come in and see the king, it just wouldn't work. So it was his task to ensure that things went well and the right people came to speak to the king. But this Shebna, he did not seek the welfare of the people. He did not come and to listen to the complaints of the poor. He did not listen to the cry of the needy. Instead, he sought his own honor. And what did he do? He, he used his position to, to gain a whole lot of uh, illicit wealth for himself. He, he, he dug a royal tomb for himself to be used for his own honor and his own importance. And this is why the Lord speaks to this Shebna 
And he warns him because he's abusing his responsibility and his authority in the house of David. Isaiah 22 verse 19. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. And instead, what's the Lord going to do? He's going to give the key to the house of David, access to the king then. He's going to give this key to someone else, to his servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And concerning him, the Lord says this in chapter 22, verse 21. He says, And I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. In other words, he's going to act rightly, responsibly, appropriately. He's going to use that authority right. And then comes that verse that I also it was quoted in Revelation 3 verse 7, which I've read to you earlier in the sermon, chapter 22 verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. The Lord would see to it that the one who held the key to the house of David, the one who would have authority over the covenant people of God, that he would be a man of integrity. He would serve his God's people well. And therefore, woe unto him who would use that key wrongly. And this is why our Lord Jesus Christ is so angry with the scribes and the Pharisees at the time when he's on earth. And he said to them, Matthew 23, verse 13, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. And so what does that teach us? And elders, this particularly is a lesson also and something for you to consider also. The Lord Jesus Christ has given the keys of the heaven for you to exercise. And you must do so. You must not shirk from that responsibility. Also in times when there are difficulties or when there is great opposition to using those keys. You must not have different yardsticks for different people. But the keys of the kingdom must be used in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they must be used in agreement with his revealed will. It's not for you as elders or it's not for me as minister, as preacher, to decide for us as to who we should accept and who we shouldn't according to our own whims and ideas, our own convictions outside of the word of God. But we must use these keys for the well-being of the congregation and also then to call the congregation to that living faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to receive the complete forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and righteousness in Him alone. The keys are given to the church and they must be used but they must be used well. And when these keys are used well, then we as members of Christ's church must recognize their authority because they have been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
Brings me to my second point or question, how were the keys administered? When Christ gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter and so to the church, he gave the church a huge responsibility. Since we've used these keys, we've received them, they must be used. In fact, if a church does not use the keys of the kingdom of heaven as Christ intended, it really ceases to be a church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That may sound harsh, but it is true. It's no more than a club. When the word is preached, there is only one word that can be preached, and that is the gospel, the full gospel of salvation. Very gone to that with respect to Lord's at 25. But also then with respect to answer 84 uh, of uh, the catechism. Answer 84. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. In other words, the word must be preached. It must be preached that your sins are forgiven when you repent and you cling to Christ. There's a lot of so-called preaching that goes on uh, in, in so-called churches where you may receive good tips on how to live a life or good advice on relationships, of, of staying positive and so forth. Maybe some very nice things also to hear in that. But if those messages are given outside the message of the gospel of salvation, Jesus Christ, that is not preaching. It's not the gospel preaching. In fact, these messages will direct you not to Christ, but away from him to find your well-being within yourself or in other people. Self-help messages and sermons to do this or to do that, rather than to point to your salvation, Jesus Christ is not true preaching of the gospel, and it will not lead to repentance and to true faith. But the gospel, the true gospel, must be preached everywhere and without discrimination. Canons of Dort, chapter 2, article 5, says this, The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise ought to be proclaimed universally and without discrimination to all peoples and to all men to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel together with a command to repent and believe. That's what preaching is all about. That's what preaching must do. But this also means that the preaching must contain a warning for those who do not repent, who do not believe. No, it's not as though every sermon will have these things to the same extent. But there must also be that warning. The prophet Jeremiah, he warned against those false teachers and preachers. They were proclaiming, peace, peace. It's all good. It's all nice and God loves you and have a wonderful life. But he says, but there was no peace. Indeed, how terrible it would be if the preaching ignores the command to repent and to turn to Christ. How terrible it would be if every week you come to church and you're told, it's all good, it's all good, it's all fine. When it's not. And when you have not repented and turned to Christ. When you were living in sin. And you see, this is why the, 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 the sword of the word, it is a double-edged sword. It opens, it closes. And so 84 of the Catechism, it says then, the kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. And so the preaching the gospel, it gives you a clear choice, if I may use that word here. What I mean then, it sets before you an ultimatum. 
Believe the gospel and your sins will be forgiven. And you will be saved. Or reject the gospel. Reject what God has to say to you. And then you will live in your sins apart from Christ and then be condemned. And to be condemned is to be judged, not just in this life, but also in the life to come. And so what this is teaching us is that the preaching of the gospel is a really serious matter. Preaching doesn't contain just what we want to hear, but the preaching contains what God declares. The Apostle Paul understood this. He understood the compulsion he was under to use the preaching positively. And this is why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, he said, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then we have that passage that we read from earlier in the service from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. He, he refers to the preaching as like a fragrance. It's like a smell. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then listen to what he says. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. And so on the side of the church, the elders, and especially on the side of the minister, there's a great responsibility to ensure that the gospel, the good news of salvation is preached, and it's preached well. And therefore, every sermon and every service must, in one form or another, have this basic message. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. And if you do not believe you will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in you, as John 3.36. But since the preaching of the gospel is of such importance, we must all understand the need for the preaching and the need to listen to, to submit to the preaching. Since it's through the preaching of the word that the Holy Spirit works faith in the hearts, we can't neglect it. You can't, nor we may go to hear that which is not the gospel, but some other message, as we'll be reminded of later on in the fourth commandment. It is of the greatest importance that we diligently attend the church of God and to hear the preaching of the gospel. And when we hear it, we must respond to it. Uh, just a little more, more quickly now, the, the other key to the kingdom of heaven is church discipline. And this is answer 85. I'd like to uh, just read that again. According to the command of Christ, so it's answer 85. According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrinal life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they report it to the church, that is to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments. They are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself, and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ." And they are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. So what is this teaching? It says here that well, because the message of the gospel is so precious, being saved in Jesus Christ is such an important message to learn and to believe. This must be protected. 
And that means that people who call themselves Christians but really are not, they must be disciplined. And so it's the preservation of the gospel and of the glorious measure of being saved in Jesus Christ and of being in the community of Christ. It's in this context that discipline must be exercised against those who reject that message. And so we often say that discipline is to be taken and be done for three reasons. The first reason is so that the name of God might be honored and not blasphemed. The second would be so that the church might be kept pure and not share in such sin. And the third reason for discipline is so that the sinner might be convicted of their sin and so repent and be restored to the church of Christ and to the kingdom of God. So three reasons for discipline, God's glory, the holiness of the church, and the salvation and the well-being of the one who has sinned. Church discipline is difficult. It is, it is very painful. It is hard to do. And we all struggle to do it well. Uh, to confront a brother or a sister who is disobedient to God in doctrine or in life is a hard thing to do. It's hard for you to do this. It's very hard for the elders and the consistory to do this. Discipline is carried out with a heavy heart. But it is also done, indeed it must be done, out of love. Discipline must be done out of a love for God, a love for his church, and a deep love for the person who is walking away from Christ. The road of church discipline that leads to excommunication, it is a slow one in our churches. It is a careful one. There are various checks and balances along the way. It's got to be this way. To declare a person to be excluded from the fellowship of Christ of his kingdom, that is, it's a really serious and a painful thing to do. Because the Bible says that when this is done correctly, it's not just that the person is excluded from your Christian congregation, but it's God himself excluding this person from the kingdom of Christ. And yet it's not this act of excommunication that ultimately places this person outside the kingdom of Christ, but it is that person's persistent disobedience and their refusal to believe and their refusal to live out of the gospel. But even then, and even when we go all the way to excommunication, when that happens, we pray to God. We implore God that he might yet use this excommunication to bring the sinner to repentance. Like the father of the prodigal son, we long to see this person return to Jesus Christ and to his church. And when he does return, and praise the Lord, we see it. And in my ministry, I have been blessed to experience this a number of times. And praise the Lord. We will receive such a person back into, into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with the greatest of joy and the greatest of thanksgiving. Because he who is dead is alive again. He who is lost is found. And so we shouldn't see the administration of the keys of the kingdom as something negative, nor as something that just simply brings pain, or something that we should just 
just not really talk about or, or not really consider. One of the most wonderful blessings that the elders have to hear have is to hear those who, upon hearing the gospel, even after having been disciplined, is that when they turn to Jesus Christ, when they profess the faith in Him, and they say, I have sinned, and they recognize this, and they receive the assurance of the complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful gift when we see the keys at work. When we see the door open to those who repent, who believe the gospel. You see, if it wasn't for these keys, that door would be shut. That door would be locked and no one could go through. There'd be no way into the kingdom of heaven. But thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. He has given these keys to his church. So that every one of his children might enter through that door. And so may that door be opened and may his people come in. Amen.